0: Hello, Cameron. Hello, Tony. How are you, Tony? We're recording this on the 23rd of March 2020. Are you fitting
1: well? I am, yes. Fitting well, exactly. That's good. Me too. I could have a virus, but I don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. True for all of us. It uh, is, yeah. Gosh, I was just down at the. Uh, The place we went to for breakfast last week, Bar 169 near us, and uh, they don't know what's going on. Right. They're trying to work out if they have jobs. So I left the water cash in the tip jar for them and wished them good luck. That may be the last time I see them for a while.
0: Yeah. You're pretty brave going out to a cafe in the first place. I think ScoMo has said that's verboten.
1: Yeah, from midnight today. This is the last, the last trip. You Sydney people going to Bondi? <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> as as I think you you called it, this is going to be the boomer remover. Yeah, or I think, actually, I think all the I think all the millennials went to Bondi <laughs> on wow. uh, on Friday.
0: <laughs> David, Mark, our friend David Markham in Toronto, who's in his seventies, pointed out that it's the silent generation that are more at risk. So I, I renamed it to the silent virilent.
1: oh dear we shouldn't be laughing it's It's not that funny we shouldn't (laughs) be no it's not no it's it's a good that's a good title i'm just no and we should say that i mean you took some video last week and i've seen it popping up on facebook and other things and i think you know we were laughing and having fun but it is very serious i want to just point out that that we're even though we make light of things, we're still pretty deadly serious, and uh, we're dealing with serious issues.
0: You have to laugh at times like this, otherwise, I think so. you know, you'll just uh, curl up in the corner and uh, shoot yourself in the head. Except we don't have guns no. in this country, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I think you're right. I think you know, like I said to someone recently, we we you know manage our investments carefully to get a quality of life, and if we don't have a good quality of life along the way, then we're defeating our own point. So. That's why I think uh, I stay happy and joking, even though things are serious.
0: Yeah, and look, uh, you yeah. know, it's an unfortunate reality of life that people die. People die every day. More people are going to die this year than usual, but that's uh, just a fact of life, right? People die from all sorts of things every year.
1: Yeah, and I think when we're, you know, I think whether it's right or wrong, the government and, and individuals are trying to do the right thing to keep those numbers down. Except the and people who really went, we can do Except
0: the people who went to Bondi. Well, yeah, they're the German removers. <laughs> and the pe- and the people who, who made the decision to let everyone off the Ruby Princess.
1: Oh, man. You know, I'm sitting there on Sunday afternoon and another cruise ship docked. Watching it at Circular Key, I'm going, what the fuck? Are you guys stupid? You and I, I
0: was, for people who don't know, but I'm sure most of you do, I was in Sydney last week for the screening of our film. that turned out the second and last screening of our film. And uh, you, we were up on your balcony on the 38th floor overlooking Sydney Harbour and all the cruise ships and this is like Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday morning and we were saying, well, you know, sucks to be these people because there's no way in hell they're getting let off those boats for the next couple of months. I wonder what the hell they're going to do. And I get back to Brisbane and I hear that they've been let off one of the boats and I was like, what? What's going on? Yeah. And there
1: was something like, oh, I think the number was 25 cases Confirmed when they tracked down the people who got off. Unbelievable. That's just stupid. And there's another cruise ship docked yesterday night, yesterday afternoon.
0: Yeah. What are they thinking? Yeah. But, I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Anyway, we could send them to Nauru. It's not like we don't have facilities set up for people that we don't want to let land on the shore. Uh, We've got plenty of facilities. They're not great. Not great facilities.
1: But... (laughs) I think there's even a casino on Christmas Island, so you could probably uh, make that the the docking capital for cruise ships of the world. Right. Come to the COVID nineteen casino on Christmas Island, a CCC. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, yes, we're going to continue to laugh and banter and joke around. We, you know, it's it's serious. There will we will all be experiencing tragedy over the next twelve months. But um, what else are you going to do? I think you got to say say la vie. Such-
1: and is good for your immune system, too. Yeah, that's true.
0: So anyway, um, welcome to the reboot, uh, part two of our new reboot. Um, we, we, uh, well, for those of you who are new to the reboot, uh, when we were having our QAV dinner, our first ever QAV dinner on, uh, when was it? Wednesday night last week in Sydney. Very small dinner. Uh, it was you, me, Jenny, your wife, uh, and two of our listeners, Paul and Cameron. The the uh, Cameron one, I've uh, I've denoted him because he's uh, a bit older than me, so he gets precedence. He's my elder, Cameron the elder, like Pliny, the elder and Pliny the younger. Um, one of the ideas came up. I'm not sure. I think it was Paul who suggested it that we should reboot the series, particularly the Getting Started episodes, because not that your, your your philosophy or your methodology has changed in the last 18 months. It hasn't. But a couple of things have changed. Our, 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 our skills as podcasters and talking about this has improved. Uh, you've become a lot more comfortable in front of a microphone and a lot more comfortable articulating this. Because up until we started this series, you'd never had to articulate it to anyone except yourself before, sitting in yep. your room, talking to yourself
1: in the mirror. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, like, as, uh, that, as that note in Brett Whiteley's gallery says, uh, no, no mumbling to yourself before 4pm.
0: <laughs> I was thinking Martin Sheen in uh, Apocalypse Now, you're just staring at yourself in the mirror, punching the mirror. <laughs> um, uh, and, Sydney, I'm
1: still only in Sydney
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> and, uh, and I have my head around it a little bit better than we did at the beginning so I can uh, help explain it and, and that kind of stuff and also the, the, the checklist, when we started this I was trying to build my own version of the checklist from scratch it's gone through many iterations since then And I'm using Stock Doctor now and all that kind of stuff so we're rebooting the getting started series there was also a suggestion from Eddie in an email saying hey why don't you do like a PDF getting started guide that also breaks down each of the columns in the checklist and so I'm going to do that as well Uh, well I have done that I've written the first draft of that already did that over the weekend and, uh, yeah, but we're going to keep doing the, your questions as they come in and an analysis because, as you were just saying to me off air, this is the, the best time to be, you know, learning the skills of how to be a professional investor.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, uh, you know, I think I've said before on the series, I don't get any income from the series. I'm doing this because I want people to, to become more financially literate and look after their own futures uh, without paying much in the way of fees. Uh, I know you, you get the income but you use that income to keep the, the podcast afloat too uh, but but if you have if you aren't subscribing and you're listening to this on the free episode, you might want to consider subscribing because this is really uh, you know it's it's turning out to be a once in a generation event which means there aren't many people around who can help guide you through that kind of process. So you might just want to consider, listening to us uh, going forward, even if you just do it during this, this uh, period of uncertainty. But it does help to listen to people who've been through th- these things before. Not that either of us have been through a pandemic, but I've certainly been through lots of serious downturns in the markets. And I'm reminded of one of my bosses at Shell came back into the late 80s who, who said to me that he would never you know, put his money with someone who hadn't lived through a recession before. And that that point's always stuck with me, and I was just thinking about that point this morning, and the fact that we haven't had a recession in Australia since 1991, and so there aren't that many of us old buggers around who've who've lived and worked through a recession. I wasn't investing back then. I started investing in the mid 90s, but I was certainly running businesses and uh, parts of Shell during during that recession, and it was tough. Uh, and you, it, you you know it's good to talk, talk to people who've been through those recessions, who've been investing through the GFC and the tech wreck and the Gulf Wars and the Asian financial crisis. The eighty—I wasn't investing in the eighty-seven crash, but certainly, again, was working through it. So, uh, experience really counts in these times. So, uh, just—I've t- never touted for business on this podcast, but uh, if you're thinking about signing up, then maybe you should.
0: I—I uh, I thought you were around during the nineteen uh, Spanish flu, <laughs> Tony.
1: I. <laughs> no, that, that was David Markham, I think, perhaps,
0: but not me. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I, I think. Um, let me start that again. Yeah, look, it's whilst uh, we, we don't, uh, as we said earlier, we don't want to make light of this, and, and you don't want to treat it as a well, being an opportunist, other people's tragedy. The reality is that uh, most of us will survive this and most of us will come out of this uh, wanting to continue to build our uh, financial security and a lot of people are going to have a lot of their financial security wiped out as a result of this. It's going to take them many, many years to get back to where they were a couple of months ago. I was talking to my mum uh, on the weekend. She's in her early seventies. She retired. She said, "Yeah." She said, "I'm not even looking at my super right now because I'm just terrified. I know it's just been wiped out, and she didn't have a lot to start with. Um, so it's uh, you know very scary time. But we have to we have to rebuild. And I'm grateful that coming through this, I have." someone with your experience and uh you've spent decades thinking about investing and researching it and practicing it yeah i feel lucky to have someone like you to help me through the next few years so uh yeah thank you again for giving us your time and experience tony
1: yeah no, no problems thank you too uh, and, and and you know, thank you for putting the podcast together. I don't think people realise how much work you do and how professional it is. So that's good too. Uh, getting back to your mum, you know, I, I my you know my observation would be don't be terrified. <clears throat> I'm not sure how her superannuation is invested or who it's with. Um, I'm hoping she's done the right thing and put it into a low, you know, low uh, cost maybe an industry fund and maybe her age into a balanced portfolio. So it, it maybe it hasn't gone down as much as the share market has, um, I, I don't know. But but either way, uh, if you think back to what Steve Sambatino said about when he invested through the GFC, he put his money into low cost index funds and, and he was most concerned not with capital growth, but with uh, income preservation. And even in the GFC, I think, incomes really only went down maybe 25 20 to 30 percent and they, they've come back so if you if you are planning your retirement my my observation again would be you know do your numbers and if you can live on what what you're planning to retire on great but please stress test it so you can live on uh, you know a pay cut of maybe 30 percent for a few years as well um, so that's my you know words of wisdom to you to your mum just uh, don't panic don't make changes uh, if you need to talk to your industry super fund, talk to them. But uh, you know, the questions I'd be asking are around the income side: Will dividends still keep flowing? Will I still keep getting the income I'm getting now? And if not, how much is it going to drop by?
0: You've met my mum. Does she strike you as the kind of person who panics?
1: No, she doesn't. <laughs> She's pretty cool and laid back.
0: <laughs> He's
1: like, well, there you go. Whatever will be, will be.
0: You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Good.
0: I've Good. seen my mum's uh, notebook from the mid-70s when uh, she had to add up how many cents she had to, to figure out how to feed three children. So, uh, mm. yeah, my mum's been poor before. She's not, mm. she's not worried about it. Um, and a very practical woman too. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, let's uh, get into some of the questions, I guess, for this week, Tony. Well, just-
1: yeah, just let me make a couple of comments, first of all, because there's, there's been questions directed at me just by friends and family, which I, pro- I want to just address mm-hmm. first before we talk to, about the listeners' questions. Uh, most of the questions I'm getting now, if not all of them, well, the first ones are, what do I do <laughs> and "And should I sell? And, of course, the answer is yes, but maybe three weeks ago. So, you know, if you haven't sold now, you, you pretty much are locked in. Uh, I, I think the market probably has a bit further to fall but but we're closer to the bottom now than we were you know, a month ago uh, so it's probably too late so the next question I get is is it time to buy and my again, I'm not buying yet and that's, that's been what I've been telling people, even though I don't give advice, I just say well I'm not buying yet, it's too soon <clears throat> and I also tell people about the falling knife and um, if you're looking at any sort of share price at the moment or most share prices at the moment even the market at the moment they've all breached their support lines in terms of uh, trend lines and they're all on the way down so you're really playing catch the falling knife at the moment so i think it's still too soon to buy i don't think we're you know one of the problems we have now is we know that there are companies which are quality companies but we don't know yet what they're, how they're being affected and what they're going to look like um, next year. So one of the questions I'm asking myself at the moment is, it is it time yet to put together a watch list of quality companies? Because sometimes in these once-in-a-generation events, you can pick up companies you've always wanted to buy, but they've never been cheap enough. Uh, you know, I did a bit of a back-of-the-envelope exercise with that on the weekend. None of the ones I'm looking at, you know, score... Well on our QAV checklist, uh, and a lot of them haven't fallen that much. So my answer is probably not at this stage. Uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, maybe drawing up a list, but but on it, but not actioning it just yet. Uh, we're going to go through a period, as we've already started to see last week, of companies saying we don't have enough cash and we're going to have to raise equity because uh, they can't borrow anymore The banks are sort of becoming a bit wary of lending to, to certain companies in certain sectors, and I think that will spread uh, because we have a very uh, interconnected you know, financial economy in the world and in Australia these days. Uh, so we haven't been through, we, we're starting to go through it now with two or three companies, but that's the tip of the iceberg. And This may be different to the GFC, but what happened in the GFC was the companies that needed to raise cash, raised cash, and that, that took a couple of months to go through. And then other companies which didn't need to raise raise cash thought, well, you know, it's a thing in the market at the moment. It's their opportunity to get our balance sheets even stronger. And so even good quality companies suddenly started uh, raising capital uh, because uh, they could see themselves being able to strengthen their balance sheets uh, at a time when uh, investors were thinking about buying back into the market. Because uh, you know, of course, if, if we start buying shares and they start going up, that money doesn't flow through to the companies; it flows through to the people where, uh, who are selling shares. So, if you know the savvy sort of boards are saying to themselves, "Let's get a slice of that action," and they they may well start uh, going to the market as well. So, companies like BHP and some of the banks who who and you know, to, to the best of my knowledge, aren't capital constrained, may still have share raisings just to fortify their balance sheets just because people are in the market looking to invest in these kinds of discounted raising. So we haven't started seeing that yet, and I think we're going to start seeing it, and I think it's not time to invest just yet.
0: Right, yeah, I note that the uh, as of this morning, the uh, all odds is down 7.5 points <clears throat> this morning. 7.5%. And so, and uh, sorry, 7.5%, yeah.
1: Right, okay, I haven't checked. It's not surprising. Yeah, so, It's uh, not surprising. still I think further the, to go. Yeah, and one of the questions that we'll have to address in an upcoming episode is, how do you value companies when they're raising capital? And, you know, that's a bit of a um, seesawing exercise where you're trying to work out how much the shares are being diluted and what you think they're going to be earning once we get through the, the, G, or the recession or whatever we're going to call this, uh, whether we're going into depression in the future. Uh, so, what what numbers are you going to use? Sometimes these capital raisings are done by what's called accelerated rights, which means that uh, industry funds and what they call sophisticated investors will have a short amount of time to stump up the cash. Otherwise, uh, and retail investors will get locked out. Uh, so, if you're in that camp, you might have you know forty eight hours to decide whether you want to buy or not. So, you've got to be nimble, and you've got to understand the companies, and 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 have, as I said before, a list of companies on your quality list that you're prepared to invest in and do some quick numbers. So it's, uh, it's going to be a, uh, an interesting time, which only, only sort of happens once every maybe 10 years, if that, uh, going forward. So yeah, watch this space, I think. You were saying to me on the weekend that
0: uh, Warren Buffett must be going home every night now and taking off his tie and doing a little dance.
1: Oh absolutely, I mean how many episodes? I mean how many articles have we spoken about in the last six months? With it go, Buffett's lost his touch. He's got a hundred and ten billion dollars of cash sitting on his balance sheet. Berkshire Hathaway isn't growing. Yeah, he's he's going home and going no 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 no. I've got hundred ten billion dollars worth of cash, and you want it, mm. and uh, and that's actually someone made the point in one of the blogs I read recently that. Uh, when you see Buffett start being the lender of last resort, that's often a sign that we've reached the bottom of the market because you know he's prepared to invest in some of these companies. So that's maybe one thing we can use as a bit of a, a litmus test to see whether it's time to buy in yet. Right. And he hasn't started doing that. And right. just to give a quick summary of that, what he often does is he'll say to a company... Uh, okay, you can't borrow from the banks. You know you're going to you're faced with a heavily discounted capital raising. But hey, I'll lend you the money, and it'll be in the sort of ten billion dollar range. Uh, I want something like a maybe a a ten percent coupon for doing that. So you pay me a ten percent dividend, and I want in say the next three years or maybe the next five years to convert my ten billion dollars into a a large percentage of stock in your company. So there'll be some kind of converting preference deal which he receives a high coupon for, and that's you know that's just savvy investing. Mm. Uh, yeah. So you know he'll take a chunk in a company. Um, I guess almost by default he knows it's going to survive because he's propping it up, uh, and he's getting paid ten percent along the way while he waits for that that uh, company to get through its troubles. Mm.
0: Yeah, so people have been saying, why is Buffett sitting on all this money, value investing's dead, and Buffett was saying, well, everything's too expensive, I'll just wait till the prices come down, and everyone was saying, interest rates are zero, the prices are never coming down, you silly old idiot,
1: and now... This time it's different. Yeah, now he's, (laughs) you know,
0: he can pretty much buy whatever he wants moving forwards.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what, one last comment I want to make about the economy, and this is a bit of pie in the eye forecasting from me, pie in the sky forecasting from me, and you know how I'm not a fan of forecasting, but you know, let me just paint a scenario here. The price of oil is, I don't know what it is today, but it's around 20 bucks a barrel US, which is very, very low. And from what I'm hearing is lower than a lot of the shale oil producers in the US can keep going, uh, producing oil at, at that cost, they're, they're underwater uh, in profit wise. And it's, it's pretty clear to me that now that uh, the Saudis have flowed to the Ramco, which is the biggest oil company in the world, they and Russia are trying to corner the market on oil, and specifically they're trying to drive the shale oil business uh, out of business in the US, which has been a thorn in their side, because America has been almost oil independent since the Obama years. Uh, if that happens, then what, will, what do you think they'll do? They'll put the price up. And you are putting the price up uh, too soon might bring some of those mothballed shell uh, explorers and refiners back into the market but uh, they can just drop the price again and put them out of business again so i expect down the track and i'm not sure how long maybe in a couple of years we're going to see record high oil prices and think yeah you know, my first thought was above $100 uh, but you know, if, there's, if they're the only players in the market, you could probably double that and still not be out of the ballpark of what oil might cost. And then we're back to the oil shock of the early '70s, of the sort of or '74-'75 type period, which is a major, a major recessionary influence on the economy. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying it will happen. But people aren't focusing on, on, on it at the moment, and I think it's out there just uh, playing out for us to watch. Mm. Mm. So a bit of cheery news. <laughs> mm. well, one, one piece of good news, I was, I was outside on our patio a couple of nights ago and I'm thinking, boy, something's different. What's different? And even now as I look out over Botany Bay at the moment, there's no planes. There's right. no planes in the sky. Mm. You know, We used to maybe see four or five at once on approach coming in, a couple going out. A uh, couple going into the international airport. So probably, you know, eight to ten planes in the sky at any one time. As I look out there now, there's nothing. Mm. So I'm, I'm wondering and hoping that if this lockdown goes on for six months and we don't see airplanes in the skies and people stay at home and don't drive their cars and cruise ships stop travelling and all that kind of thing happens, that we don't come out of it going, gee, the air smells nice and clean. Mm. Isn't it crisp? Mm. And and people finally the penny finally drops on uh, on carbon pollution.
0: Mm. As I posted yesterday on Facebook, yeah, all I've been hearing for the last ten years is, yeah, look, we can't we can't afford to uh, spend money on doing anything about climate change. Doesn't matter what people what the scientists say. Uh, we just can't come up with the money. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing how quickly we've come up with uh, billions or trillions of dollars of bailout funds uh, right now, how quickly it is when it, it affects the uh, old people. The, what's going to happen economy. to the millennials 30 years from now? Well, we, we can't afford to worry about that. But when, it, when it's... Mm. We've, we've, well, we've always heard about the uh, climate stuff, particularly from uh, the liberals here, is, well, we need to worry about the economy. We can't do anything about that. Can't we that might affect the economy, but as soon as uh, the virus hit, we just collapse the economy overnight. Oh, no, no, fuck the economy, don't worry about it. <laughs> we, we, we kill the economy, it doesn't matter about the economy, we need to save people,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, they, they were saying we need to do things which uh, help climate change but don't affect the economy, but that's a very long term game. Yeah. But now they're playing a very short term game, yeah. And they found the cash, they found the, the cash. Oh, right, we can yeah. find
0: the cash when we need to find the cash.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're going into quantitative I mean, easing
0: now in this country too. We are. That's I'm the tried. best way to find the cash is you just print new cash. She says they can we can come up with cash. It's easy. Thank you very much for your time tonight. It's
2: my great pleasure to be with you. Good evening. Now, you're an economist working in the banking sector, yeah? I am. Should I get a lawyer? I think I'm entitled to legal representation if we no, 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 discuss No, my no, work. no. This is just a few simple questions. Don't simple worry. questions? Yeah. How simple? Well, they're theoretical. Theoretical. I can yeah. deal. Yeah, okay, we can deal with that. Yeah. I mean, don't hold me to the answers, but why not? Well, because I'm an economist and I can think of a different set of circumstances under which my responses might vary somewhat. Yeah, and everything's connected to everything else, isn't in it? In economics, I'm afraid that is the global fear right at the moment, yes. Now, right, there's a, a lot of uncertainty in world economics, isn't there? There is not theres a great deal of uncertainty and a lack of confidence, yes. Yeah, and there's a lot of talk of quantitative easing. Quantitative easing, That's a term easing, we hear yes. all the time. That's a term but you hear a lot at the moment, yes. Yeah, what exactly is quantitative easing? Well, I can answer this because actually we're advising um, a couple of governments about this right at the moment. And what are you saying to them? Well, what well, is Perhaps so I should just take you through what we're telling them to do. Yeah, sure. I mean I right. won't go into a lot of detail no, That'd that's be discreet, but this will mm. give you an idea of how quantitative Off easing works. Yep. Take printer out of box and mm. place on table <laughs> with the out tray facing the window. The out tray facing the window. That's right. Load paper into the paper receptacle and place currency on glass tray F. Right. Check alignment by printing out a test page. Right. Go into copy settings and select double-sided and the number of copies you require. How many would you suggest? In the case of one of our clients, it's 80 billion. 120 billion in the case of another client, and one client wants a trillion of these things. Can you get printers to do that? No, you can't. You're going to need a bank of them. I mean, it's a multi-printer job. Ones, really, yeah, yeah. Big industrial strength. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Big like a Bofors gun, all facing yeah. the window. Yeah. 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 Uh, once you've ascertained um, that uh, you have the alignment correct, yeah. uh, you alert the banking sector, open the window, and press copy. And stand well back? Yes, you've got to stand well back because they can create a bit of a vacuum while reaching cruising height. Whereabouts? In the super fund industry, very often, and you'd have to consider the wind direction too. Oh, well, yeah, you don't you? want yeah. to be doing this upwind. No, because you get covered in pretend <laughs> money, couldn't you? Covered in what? Pretend money. No, this is not pretend money. This is real currency we're creating. But aren't here. you just printing it off? I mean, these are photocopies, aren't they? Excuse me, Dave. This is not going to work, because well, I've just explained it to a bloke and he saw through it straight away. <laughs> you <laughs> in banking? No. No, he's not even in the banking racket. <laughs> okay, I'll try that. Try what? Have you ever heard of Rumple Stiltskin? <laughs> no. Good now we're getting somewhere, pull up a chair
1: I'll turn you a tail <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's where we are, or as the economists like to call it modern monetary theory uh-huh. Google that one if you want to know what's going to happen in the future
0: I have I've, I've, yeah I think we've already done that I did that on one yeah. of my other episode, one of my one of my other shows
1: last year right okay okay mm. yep some people are saying it's the end of capitalism when the government controls the economy. Mm. By printing money. Mm. Mm. Okay,
0: well, quite, quite uh, possible. can we, we get into the questions? Yep,
1: yeah, let's go. Sorry about the uh, sidetracks. That's all right.
0: Oh, well, uh, this is Eddie. Uh, so I'm just going to start with some questions from Eddie. Eddie who came up with the idea of coming up with a, a book, a guide to QAV, and I thought, why the hell didn't I think of that like a year ago? So good work, Eddie. That's why it's good yeah. that our, our audience is smarter than I am because they come up with these ideas. <laughs> he Thanks says, a lot, Eddie. Good work, Eddie. Just a couple of Thanks quick a lot, questions. Eddie.
1: Did you ever see that commercial? Thanks a lot, Eddie. No. Was it... Uh, oh, okay. I grew up in Queensland. It was a carpet commercial in Queensland.
0: Oh, right, right. I thought it was I was going to have a crack at what's his face the AFL Eddie guy Pushing, yeah, something about him making some racist comment to someone, and someone saying "thanks a lot, Eddie," but yeah, it's probably not. <laughs> no. Uh, just a couple of quick questions. Does Tony think he would have been have uh, would have would would have would have have? Let me start again. Does Tony <laughs> think he would have been able to sustain his past nineteen and a half percent per annum return if he didn't use leverage, i.e., not borrowing
1: money to buy shares? Yeah, quick answer to that one. Yes, I would have, uh, but I would have had less and less at the moment, less overall. So, the nineteen and a, the the rate of compound interest, uh, compound uh, earnings, is not affected by leverage, uh, but the amount is affected. So, in other words, if I had, if I started off with a hundred thousand dollars worth of shares and just invested along the way, I would still have nineteen and a half percent returns over the last twenty five years, and whatever that gets to at the end, maybe a couple of million dollars. Uh, but by leveraging, I had a couple of hundred thousand dollars at the beginning. And so the the, the, the bank at the end is much bigger than a couple of million dollars. So, so leveraging just allows you to put more money into the market and have that total amount compounded. It doesn't affect the compound rate. Mm.
0: What affects the compound rate is the stocks that you buy. Correct, when that's you, how you invest. And when you buy and when you sell and all that kind of stuff. That's right. The strategy. Yep. Yep. Uh, another question from Eddie: Could Tony run through step by step how we would analyse the health of Webjet? I.e., are they in real danger of going bust or not? What are all the factors on top of looking just at the books that need to be considered?
1: Well, we can't. I mean, we can do Webjet as a QAV analysis uh, uh, company if you like. It's a bit of a moving target at the moment because Webjet went into a trading halt last week. And they're looking at ways of raising capital. Uh, And it's now reported in the financial review this morning, the 23rd of March, that KKR, the famous uh, leverage buyout firm, is is, uh, offering to take a substantial shareholding in WebJet and they're negotiating over the terms and the price of that at the moment. So. not, a much, not much more I can add to that. If, I think if we did a QAV analysis on its most recent results, it would be okay. Uh, and uh, the price to operating cash flow, I would expect to be too high to make it uh, part of our watch list. But having said all that, I think given the deterioration in the market, it's pretty useless doing an analysis on Webjet using their, their most recent figures because they're just not going to be right.
0: Well, I think what I replied to Eddie in my email is, yeah, well, first of all, just looking at the sentiment chart for it, uh, the five-year monthly sentiment chart, it's, uh, you know, we're not going to buy it. Um, I mean, it sort of has, let
1: me see, yeah. Well, it's dropped from $17 a share down to $3.76.
0: yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it had a positive trend before that, but then it's fallen off the edge of a cliff, and, you know, that would be a mm. no-go. Go, it's sort of a breaker point on our checklist, so we mm. wouldn't even get beyond that. But secondly, in my understanding of how the checklist works is you don't look at anything other than the books. We look at the numbers because the numbers, uh, the way the numbers have been built, they tell us the more microeconomic story of that, company's prospects, because we're looking at, is their equity going consistently up? If it's not, it's not going to pass that one. We're looking at the future earnings per share that the analysts are predicting. If that's going down, then it's not getting through that check. Uh, We're looking at the uh, intrinsic value that analysts at Stock Doctor and share analysis have, and the future intrinsic value that they've got down for it. If that's going down, it's not passing that. So the the, the you know one of the very clever things about the way you've built the checklist is it takes into account that uh, uh, the the. the Performance of the company or the industry that the company in, and the market more broadly, through a lot of these numbers. We we basically, by looking at the numbers, we're able to tell what people who are experts in that in, anal- in analysis of that particular sector or that particular company, assuming it has analysis coverage. Some small companies don't, but I'm sure Webjet does. It it. it tells us whether or not the company's in trouble or not, and if it's a good long-term prospect in terms of quality or not. So we don't need to dive into the details of you know, how much debt it's carrying and you
1: know, how, you know, what it's doing in this, that or the other sense. Am I right? You're right, yeah. Um, the only, the only uh, extra comment I'd make is, I think if we had gone through and done the full analysis on Webjet, we would see it was having some problems. Uh, that's based on its December 19 figures. So, for example, uh, the balance sheet went down in terms of equity in December 19. Uh, analysts were dropping their have now dropped their forecast since then to $10 a share, even though the share price is trading below that. That's that's not a good sign either. Uh, so, these kinds of things, and sometimes you know, a company can get some incre- improved scores because the yield, for example, on This company went from 1.73 in December 19 up to 5.98, so it would score on our checklist. But I think we're smart enough to say these numbers are a bit rubbery at the moment because, uh, you know, there's no planes flying, no one's booking holidays, they can't travel, and this is a travel company business. So you'd have to be very, very close to the company uh, to even get a feel for what the forecast is going forward. Um, which probably means being like a KKR and engaging with the board yeah. and talking to them, or or taking the view that uh, the forecasts are intact because next year uh, the economy is going to be back on its uh, a healthier footing and people are starting to travel again. But uh, if that's the case, we're waiting until those figures come out mm. and we're waiting until sentiment returns in the in the share price. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, Webjet. I don't think would have been on our radar. It wasn't on our radar before this problem, before the whatever we're going to call it, the, the what do you call it, the silent virus or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but um, it's certainly not now. The silent virulent, silent virulent. Thank you. Mm. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Eddie. I mean, I, I think the the point in that in. This question for me, though, is just that and We get this question from time to time, which is why I'm sticking on a little bit. Is no, you tend not to dig into the operating details of the business because the numbers already tell us that story. Because we're letting other people who are experts, let's say in the travel sector or in, you know, a web in particular, analysts who. Focus on these things, that's showing up in our numbers, how they rate it and it gets factored in to our overall score. So we don't need to be experts in Webjet or experts in the travel sector necessarily.
1: Yeah, look, that's a good point too for new for listeners is that uh, you've got two ways to go as an investor. You can focus on something very, very narrow and have an in-depth understanding of it. And then if that happens to be the travel industry, then you will have a very good opinion about what WebJet will do. Or you can, as I have done, evolved over a long period of time, say I need to analyse quickly a large number of companies and therefore here are the metrics I'm going to look at. And some of those might be primary numbers and some of those might be secondary numbers. And so you do rely somewhat on people who have deeper analysis and understanding of you and you look at their numbers as well. Mm.
0: Mm. Okay. uh, More questions from Eddie. Talking about the BHP episode, Eddie's a new uh, listener and he's gone back to our early episodes, which we will be rebooting over the next few weeks. But he's listening to our original BHP episode. I think it was episode three or four, something like that. um, And he's talking about using the stock doctor health rating. Uh, he says, I'm using the NAB trading platform and they have currently Thomas Reuters recommending neutral score of seven, average of 15 analysts giving a rating of buy. Morningstar quantitative recommendation is undervalued. How would Tony use this info I have access to to develop a checklist rating to give it or what other way could listeners do this without having to, su- to subscribe to Stock Doctor?
1: Mm. So I think we did cover that in episode two, maybe of our initial series, and we'll cover it again. Uh, you can you can still get access to most of the information that's um, available in Stock Doctor outside of Stock Doctor. Where you start to come unstuck a little bit is on their financial health ratings. Uh, so you know is it is it a a star stock and does it have a, a level or improving financial health score? And we went through that in one of the earlier episodes i think two maybe three or four and we said look at look at things like uh the uh debt to equity ratio and uh look at short-term uh debt to uh to uh equity ratio as well as long-term debt to equity ratio I, uh, off the top of my head that was one of them i think there were one or two other ones and then you know give them a checklist score make up a little checklist score of out of five of or oh, i think there might have been seven things we said look at we i think we summarize that down to four or five in later episodes. Uh, so you can, you can do it yourself, go back and listen to those for more detail and we'll start to go through that stuff again in more detail. Um, but most of the things you can get in Reuters as we've uh, battled through in the past, but it is a bit clumsy. And I think the main thing that we battled with was uh, interim results. Uh, annual results are fine, the, the numbers usually line up with the, uh, numbers that are in Stock Doctor. And I think Stock Doctor actually subscribes to Reuters for its numbers anyway, it just reformats them and and does a few uh, calculations along the way. Uh, So the Reuters number is the source for Stock Doctor, so if you can do their calculations you can come up with your own uh, scores as well. But the trickiest one I think is for interim results where you're adding six months worth of data to the past six months worth of data, when Reuters sometimes only gives you the last annual numbers. So we found, I'm not sure whether it was in Reuters or in Yahoo Finance, that some of these uh, services give you a trailing 12 months number, and that can be a useful one for uh, interim results.
0: Yeah, I think we were using Yahoo Finance to get some of these numbers too, and then the last time I went in looking for them, I couldn't find it.
1: Oh, that's right. We couldn't find it,
0: could we? When we had Andre on the show yeah. from Canada. So, yeah, a little bit... Yeah. A little bit tricky, but he's, you know, so he's got um, so, uh, some recommendations here from Reuters and Morningstar. Um, you know, uh, uh, how would he use those? We don't really look at recommendations in our in the checklist, we don't look at a we don't get a buy recommend, recommendation from analysts. There, we just look at the financial health ratings and the intrinsic value. I guess the intrinsic value is kind of a
1: buy or undervalued rating, right? Yeah. 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 So that's the only recommendations we use. So for BHP, Stock Doctor themselves gives a recommend a recommendation or an intrinsic value, and that's currently sitting at forty dollars fifty cents. And the consensus valuation for analysts is at $39.20 and the current price is at $2,609. So uh, I'm guessing that the analysts just haven't updated their figures recently. I I don't think a valuation of $40 is going to hold in this market.
0: So would I be right in suggesting that people who don't have access to Stock Doctor could take out the column or replace the column in the checklist where we look at what Stock Doctor's financial health rating is and the intrinsic value, pick some analysts uh, that you are confident in if you want to look at the Reuters recommendation and the Morningstar recommendation because really the purpose of looking at the Stock Doctor uh, rating and the share analysis rating is really just for you to say, okay, analysts that are studying these companies, what are they saying about it, and building a scoring system around what the analysts are saying. So you could you could replace Stock Doctor and Share Analysis with Reuters and Yahoo Finance and Morningstar, right? You, the 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 purpose is still the same thing. You just you're taking a, a sample set of what analysts are saying and giving it a score based on that.
1: Yeah, the only caveat I would say is that. With Stock Doctor in particular, they're, they're, they have a very unique way of judging financial health. Uh, and they, based on the work of Dr Merv Lincoln, who's the father of the current owner of Stock Doctor, when he did his PhD, he went back and analysed all the companies on the ASX that had failed um, over a period of time and came up with a list of metrics, of ratios. Uh, some of them are ratios for profit and loss sheets, some of them are ratios for balance sheets. Some of them are, are combined. Some of them are cash flow statement ratios. And uh, that's how they base their, their financial health scoring. They go through and say, uh, if a company uh, is scoring highly on the Merv-Lincoln scale, then they're in financial distress. And they kind of wind it back from there, depending on how many of the distress ratios companies have on their on their current the, P&Ls and balance sheets, and the ones that have very little are are financially healthy. So, But look, I I agree with you. I think that um, as long as you're using a source which is giving some measure of financial health analysis, then sure, uh, swap out Stock Doctor and put in that as a score. It's, uh, I'm sure there's other services out there which do a similar result.
0: Yeah, in your opinion, it's probably not going to be as good uh, as using the stock doctor figures, which is why you use the stock doctor mm. ratings. But if you don't want to fork out for stock doctor, you know, use, use some other service.
1: Yeah, we use Share Analysis. That also has a quality rating which we feed into our checklist. Uh, so, yeah, we have, what, two or three uh, of those. Parts of our checklist which use an external financial health analysis service. Um, I'm sure there are other ones out there, and and maybe like if you could drill into Reuters or some of the other ones, they may have a portion of their recommendation which says, you know, this is our score. This is how we get to our final recommendation. We have a score for financial health, and we have a score for price, and put those two together. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not familiar with it. Again, this is you know this is not financial advice. This is how I've done it. Yeah. And, and got there by evolution. Yeah. Hmm.
0: so And feel free to modify the checklist as you say fit, as we've always said, and tell us what your modifications are because yeah. maybe they are
1: potential improvements that we can add in later on. Absolutely. And I think when we were talking with Steve Mab, he mentioned some other sources as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not sure what episode that is, but um, Eddie might want to go back and listen to that. Mm. Um,
0: yeah, I can probably tell you. That was episode 207, season 2, episode 7, Stephen Mm Mab. Got a question from Stephen coming up soon. Um, One uh, one more question, though, from Eddie. He says, I'm using earnings per share pre-abnormals, the only option they have on the NAB trading website. Does the pre-abnormals component affect the EPS figure in comparison to what you and Tony would be using?
1: Uh, no, because I'm pretty sure Stock Doctor is using. No, sorry, yes, it would. Stock Doctor is using, I think, an after abnormals figure. So we found that difference before when we've uh, compared your numbers before you were in Stock Doctor and you're using Reuters and Yahoo Finance with Stock Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to to be honest, I think the the EPS figure with abnormals is a better indication of how the company is going. Ah. Uh, yeah. But uh, Stock Doctor serves it up after abnormal, so that's just what I've been using right, uh, for convenience. And also, too, for EPS forecasts, you would hope that the forecasts uh, don't include abnormals because they're pretty hard to predict. Yes, that's, hence abnormals. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> but if you're, if you're using your earnings per share pre-abnormals and the future EPS doesn't include abnormals and then you're trying to calculate the growth isn't that yeah. going to be a little bit skewy it is that's
1: right that's why i think yeah, the, the one benefit of using uh, after abnormals in the eps is you're probably comparing like for like with the current eps versus the future one in terms of deciding on the growth of the company yeah yeah okay so Tough one. that one you can you can also too if you're so inclined dig into the the profit and loss, and it will have a pre and post abnormals line as well and, and pull out your own figures from the all the companies that, uh, when they announce their results, give you all that information in the, uh, I think it's called mm. the Appendix 4 Restatement.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's the thing, Eddie, is if you want to grab all these figures, you can do it, but you have to go to the annual report of the company or the interim report, pick all these numbers out. which I tried to do in the the early stages when we were putting this together because I wanted to get my hands dirty and and get a look at it and get an understanding for it. Quickly worked out, this is a lot of work and Mm. it's very slow. So, you know, having subscription services like Stock Doctor do all that work for you. Mm.
1: Okay. Uh, I think from memory, Mm. Cameron, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we only use earnings per share directly in the checklist when we're looking at the growth figure. So, if they're both uh, without abnormals, that's probably the best calculation to do. I don't think we use EPS anywhere else, do we?
0: Yeah, no, it's just to work out the growth of earnings per share uh, over PE to get our yeah, peg, right. peg number. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah.
0: no, sorry, we do use the EPS and the hurdle rate. In IV oh, one sorry, we is do. the
1: EPS. You're right. Sorry, we do. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, arguably, we could be we could be inflating our IV by taking out the abnormals. Right. Hmm. Okay. Is that a problem? But again, that this well, it's it's again, it's probably just convenient for me to to just pull number out of stock doctor. Again, it's only one point on the checklist, and we have yeah. uh, stock. We have uh, share analysis IV, and we have consensus forecasts as well. Yeah. Um, as part of our mix, so I'm not overly worried about it. Okay.
0: Here is a question from Rom. Hi, Cameron and Tony. This might be an interesting topic for a podcast, but I wish there was a big backlash in such times to ban short selling and reduce volatility. Rel- vo- vo- relativity, reduce volatility. This major super fund is doing the right thing, and it's an article about Uni Super. Uh, what are your thoughts on short selling during uh, times like this,
1: Tony? Well, I wish I was a short seller. <laughs> We'd be making lots of money. <laughs> um, I don't have a problem with it, Cam. I, I think it's part of what they call the market discovery process. Uh, uh-huh. the, only, the, only, the only question I have about short selling is if you're a super fund, why are you lending out your stock? You're letting people bet against yourself. So either you have a view that you're only letting out a small, lending out a small amount of your total portfolio so it won't have a, a big impact or uh, you have a view that the short seller is wrong. But uh, I don't understand the, the people who are on the other side of that trail, lending out their stock. I know they get a fee for it, but uh, surely if you're buying BHP, you're thinking it's going to go up. Why would you lend it to a short seller who thinks it's going to go down? Mm. It's never made much sense to me. Whenever I've asked industry players, they just say, well, we just lend out, we just lend out little bits and it's, uh, it's an extra fee for us. Um, but yeah, I don't see the sense in it. But no, inherently I don't have a problem with short selling. It's all part of market discovery. Uh, and what, certainly... What, what does that in, mean, in market a, discovery, Tony? Well, the share market's are great is, is the wisdom of the crowd, and it's a great way to quickly get to the truth on what the, the value of a company might be and what are the issues around a company. So, for example, if I have a look at the Webjet page on Stock Doctor and I, and I can uh, call up at the bottom of the share price graph their percentage shorted, back in January... Oh, sorry, in December... Uh, shorting for webjet reached an all-time high of six percent of the stock uh, and then the, the price fell off a cliff in in uh, when was that south in January so the short sellers got it right they're actually telling us something in uh, if you pay attention to them they're saying hey this company we think is going to go down and and if nothing else it's worthwhile having a listen to their arguments and and oftentimes they'll publish their thesis because it's in their interest to get the bad information out there because it helps drive down the share price. But, you know, that just helps us make a, a, um, a more informed decision about the company.
0: But I thought we shouldn't listen to Mr. Market because he's a manic depressive and he
1: works for us. We should be listening to Mr. Value. Yeah, no, that's right. But we still have to form opinions on on all this. And, uh, you know, and, and the fact that uh, the company, you know, dropped from whatever it was, $45 a share, $50 a share, down to $26, um, tells us about the future of the company, and I mean, admittedly, we waited. If if we were shareholders, we'd wait for the breach in the three point trend, mm. and that happened around uh, you know thirty four dollars. Um, so it's kind of the same result, but I think it's very interesting to understand what's going on with some companies and where their pitfalls might be. Mm. Uh,
0: the the reason companies. Short, uh, you know, uh, provide some of this stock out there for being shorted. Is that just some sort of a hedging strategy for the companies? Uh,
1: no, the company that's lending the stock don't get any benefit out of it except for uh, the fee that they charge for people to short it. And you look, shorting is a white knuckle game. You know, you're taking a, you're. If I'm lending, if I'm borrowing, you know, a million dollars worth of Webjet stock from a super fund, and I'm paying them whatever the fee is per month and let's assume it's a couple of percentage points, uh, <laughs> A, I've got to be pretty sure that Webjet's going down, and B, I've got to be sure it happens quickly. And uh, mm. I, I often find the hardest part about that equation is working out the timing of it. Mm. Yeah, so uh, they, obviously the people who've done that have made a lot of money because the stock price is halved, and they can then sell it back to the super fund now, and maybe they've paid 4 or 5% uh, as a fee. Doing that, but they've made 50% or 100%. Um, they've doubled their money, so it's it's very uh, a very good deal for them. But people were shorting Webjet the whole way along. So if you go back even to 2017, mm. when the share price was lower than what it is now, people were 2% of the stock was shorted. So those people have had you know their their aids ripped off pretty seriously in between. <laughs> Speaking of timing, my son Taylor's cranky at you for
0: talking him out of buying Bitcoin last week because it went up from seven thousand to ten thousand in the last week. (laughs) And I said, Uh, well, actually, I told you at the time. Yeah, it'll probably go back up. But our point was, Tony's point was that's not investing. It doesn't matter if it goes up or it goes down. It's not investing. It's gambling.
1: Yeah, it's taking a punt. The next question is, would he have sold at ten thousand? Or would he go, oh, it's going to go even higher, and then it goes backwards. So yeah, well, that's what I was trying punt, to say right. to
0: him last night. It's a, it's a punt. Investing is understanding the intrinsic value of something because you have a way of measuring that and then seeing if you can buy it at less than that. And that's investing. There's some science behind it. There's some rational, you know, a rationale that you can measure, you can test. So I said, well, tell me what, what the intrinsic value is of Bitcoin and why. And he goes, well, it's going to go up. And i'm like yeah that's it right so that's the difference between investing and gambling is one has a strategy and some science and some numbers the other's just guessing and hoping really
1: you know and even if he just did the basic three-point trend line on bitcoin that would help him but from what we were talking about he didn't even understand that about it (laughs) no (laughs)
0: All right, Stephen Mab's question about leverage. Hey, Tony, hope you're well. Continues to be really interesting in volatile times. Given this is my first bear market, I'm holding up well and have handed the mental side of being down so much, so I think I'm cut out for direct investing. Congratulations, Stephen. Uh, by the way, I'm still taking you up in your offer to move in. If things get too dire, I'm moving in with you. <laughs> I'm interested in how, well, I was going to move in with Tony, but he's moving, you know, to Cape Shank, so I'll probably just, uh, <laughs> it's too far for me to go. Well no, you,
1: you can live here and take your chances with COVID-19 in the hotspot capital of Australia.
0: Yeah, well, I'd totally live in your place as long as <laughs> yeah. I can get food delivered. Um, I'm interested in how you usually leverage on the way up in markets. I have no debt and plenty of assets. I'm thinking of taking out a small mortgage on one of my properties with rates now so low to use for stock investing and then pay it off once I've made a decent gain at some point. Is that how you do it? And what kind of
1: return and timing do you plan for before you pay back the loan? Yeah, great question. Um, it is how I've done it. I'm not sure I'll be doing it this time because uh, neither of us will be working, and the bank probably won't lend us any more money. And uh, they may even review our current loan. If <laughs> hopefully they're not listening, uh, given that um, pretty soon Jenny won't be working and I'm not working, uh, even though our dividends cover the um, interest payments on the loan, they they do get a bit skittish at these times.
0: So you might uh, if, you might want to explain to people why Jenny won't
1: be working. That sounds dire. No, my wife is uh, is a. In, uh, in the financial industry and she decided to resign and and uh, take a look around uh, take some some time off and then have a look around in maybe six months yes. so she's taking a break but it's all her own choosing
0: and it was planned uh, well no, before the lockdown and all that kind of
1: stuff yes yeah. correct yes yeah 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 so uh, if this was situation normal and certainly if I go back to the GFC um, and other recessions and, and uh, depressions in the share share market Uh we we went along, and as soon as they started to be in this phase of the market, when the market was crashing, I went up and uh, increased my gearing on our properties, and and I I think I said in the reply to Steve uh, Steve's email about this that that's I really feel that's a big part of my success. You know, we we bought a house, uh, you know, we we took out a mortgage. We were lucky in that we could pay it off quickly, largely because both my wife and I were working. And we had uh, bonuses from time to time and we, we paid down uh, the mortgage as quickly as we could. And then when this kind of situation occurred, and I think the first time it happened for us was the 98 Asian financial crash, when uh, emerging markets tanked and the the share markets followed for a while. And uh, we went out and uh, retook out our mortgage and uh, put that, that drawdown into the share market. And uh, then... You've got kind of two horses in the race. So you've got the, the house, which is going up just as, as housing normally does, and you've got shares which are going up as the stock market normally does, and probably in a, at an accelerated rate. you should come out of these kinds of depressed times in the share market. And then when we have uh, when everything's doubled in value, we go and buy. Uh, you have four times the value of your original purchase of the house because you've got you know two two interests doubling the shares and the house. Uh, and then we go out and buy a bigger house and start the whole process over again, uh, and so that's another form of, of having a bigger exposure to a compounding, or two compounding markets. And uh, so, you know, I think some people are scared about taking on debt, but uh, if you're conservative with it, uh, it can really pay off for you. A, a couple of uh, learning points along the way. Um, I, I don't know what the current loan market will be like because the banks will be shy of lending, but if you can get um, whole of uh, some kind of overdraft mortgage where you're paying interest only or if you have to take out a principal and interest mortgage whereby you pay a fixed amount every month you have the ability to draw down uh, some of those payments in the future uh, that gives you flexibility to, to take out more and put back in when it suits you uh, and you're less you're less uh, up for having to pay a monthly you know amount. Uh, a couple of things to also note is that you'll get dividends every six months, and so you've got to be able to fund the mortgage in between those dividends. But then the dividends come along and they 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 pay off a whole a whole uh, lot of those payments that you've had to make. And you'll also get uh, tax benefits depending on your on your situation from franking credits. Uh, so that comes along once a year at tax time, and again it'll be a lump sum, and you may want to reduce the the mortgage or the interest. Based on on those kinds of payments, but look, having said all that, you know, go and talk to your banker, go and talk to your tax accountant, and get your own tax advice. Uh, the other point I'd make is is just to be mindful of what you know what we look at when we look at companies that we we're investing in. We don't want to see lots of gearing, and so I don't think we've ever been above about fifty percent gearing ratio. So in other words, if a house is worth a million dollars, we borrowed no more than five hundred thousand and put it in the market. Uh, just in case things go wrong, huh?
0: And you said you don't think the banks would loan you any more money. Uh, why not? You you seem like a p-
1: pretty good bet to me. Oh, uh, because they have to do. Um, they they often discount things like uh, dividends when they when you say that the dividends are going to pay off the investments because at this mark in this market they'll, they'll probably take a very conservative view of what dividends might look like going forward. They generally want to see uh, someone in a job with a, a steady income. Uh, plus we're already geared, we, we have gearing at the moment, so uh, I'd have to sit down and do a balance sheet and make sure we're not getting over-geared at the moment. Right. Steve's different, he's saying he doesn't have any gearing and, and now it's a good time to gear up, and I agree.
0: Yeah, oh, good stuff Stephen, just uh, you know,
1: keep a bed ready for me in case uh, I have to move in. <laughs> and look, I just want to circle back and say this is not financial advice. Go and talk to your tax accountant. Go and talk to your bank and just see what works for you and use common sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Question from Matt. Retail REITs like Centre Group and Unibail Rodamco Damco Westfield have been absolutely getting crucified by the market. They look quite attractive if you take a long-term view that life will recover and people will go to the shops again. I scooped up a little bit today despite the short-term risks of tenants going out of business. Interested to hear Tony's take. Many thanks again and take care, Matt. Might want to explain to new listeners what an REIT is, uh, I guess.
1: Yeah, a real estate uh, investment trust. That's what the REIT stands for. So they're basically listed companies. They they use a trust structure. Uh, I'm not really sure why other than it's probably tax advantageous to do so. Uh, to, because they're holding property with gearing, uh, and sometimes the uh, different structures can have different uh, tax benefits, uh, especially when you're you know looking at whether you want to pay dividends or want to pay uh, income to retail investors via some other means and sometimes they even have what's a, what they call a stapled structure, which means that they're a combination of both. and the the trust and the company are stapled together or some other investment vehicle. Anyway, I won't focus on that, the trust side of things. Basically what they are is listed shopping centers. Uh, REITs exist for all different types of markets. So there's commercial ones, there's warehouse ones, there's even these days data center ones. So they basically buy property, rent that property out and uh, advertise the the yield that they can offer to the people who are getting 1% in banks or less. And these companies can seem quite attractive until we get to downturns. And then two things tend to happen. We either find out how geared these companies were and they may have trouble with their gearing going forwards, although I don't know about Centre Group or UniBor or Damco Westfield in this case. Um, or, uh, you know, we find out that they're they're facing... Um, problems with their with their rentals, and just looking at Centre Group at the moment in Stock Doctor, it's down eleven point seven six percent today, and the share price high going back was five dollars thirty, and the share price today is one dollar forty six, uh, and I think you'll find out why in the next month when you can't get into shopping centres, or maybe they're only open for the supermarket aisle or the supermarket. Arm of the shopping centre and the pharmacy and things like that. they just... Uh, the, you know, retail the bottle shop. ...having problems. The bottle shop, exactly. ScoMo went <laughs> to
0: great lengths to keep everyone calm to say the
1: bottle shops will remain open. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there'll be some pop-up toilet paper shops in there as well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, retail's doing it tough. The shopping centres, you know, for very good reasons, will be shut down if they haven't been for midday today already. Uh, and uh, that's why these are going down. Again, looking at my methodology, forgetting of what the commentary is, if I look at the, sh- the share price, it was it's basically been in decline since uh, for Center Group since about January two thousand and seventeen. Uh, had a couple of attempts to to get above the buy line, so we may have, if we were wanted to invest in them, we may have bought and sold. Uh, but if you look at the share price in the last month, that's not just the falling knife. That's like a, a bird with its wings trip ripped off. Dropping out of the nest, it has just gone vertical. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, looking at buying into that share anytime soon.
0: So, I guess the, the simple way of answering this is, REITs like every other kind of listed entity that we can invest in, we will. Analyze them, and they will be applied to the checklist with the same rules as everything else, right? It doesn't matter if it's yeah. Webjet, if it's an REIT, if it's any other particular pet Correct. industry or sector or company that anyone has. It's the same rules, you know. We look, yeah. you know, we, we run them through the checklist.
1: Yeah, and and look, operating uh, REITs traditionally have fallen over on the operating cash to price uh, ratio because. You know, they're basically their operating cash flow is buying is, is is rental income from them, and you know the rental yield is five percent, six percent, seven percent. That's their cash flow coming in, and they'll trade on much higher multiples of that cash flow. And one of the reasons they do that potentially is because they get valued on the basis of their land holdings as well. So that can push up the price um, to to make it uh, much higher than what we'd like to buy in at.
0: Hmm. I think I mentioned to you when I was in Sydney that one of the first jobs I had when I was 18 or 19 was working for a private investment firm in Melbourne run by a couple of guys. And uh, what they had done is after the 87 crash, just before I started there, they uh, had gone out and scooped up a whole bunch of shopping centers around the country. These were, weren't listed shopping centres, obviously. They were privately owned. Everyone was trying to get out because there was just vacancies everywhere. These guys got mm. in, scooped them up dirt cheap, and their plan was just sit on them for three, four, five years and sell them at a massive premium, which I believe mm. they did before going to jail uh, for other
1: <coughs> things that they were doing. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you know, that's what Buffett will start doing for sure. You know he'll be doing things like that as well and and someone will step into this market and do the same thing but the, the strong will get stronger and the weak will go to the wall that's what's going to happen
0: by the way it was like working in uh oliver stone's wall street at this place there were two partners one of them it was like 88 right one of them drove yep. a uh, mercedes uh, convertible <laughs> sports thing and we, we were on uh, russell street in melbourne busy busy street no street parking there was a you know, multi story car park around the corner, but he, he was too important to take the extra couple of minutes it took to park in that. So he would always double park on the street, uh, come upstairs, toss one of us his keys and say, Go park my car. Oh. And he would often get tickets, you know, for parking his car on the street. And he's like, Well yeah, the, the you know, that's a hundred dollar ticket. My time is worth thousands of dollars <laughs> per minute, so i you know, it makes much more sense for me commercially to just pay the ticket than I'm like, Yeah, but what about the people? You're blocking the street, they can't get through, oh, yeah,
1: screw them. So you weren't, you weren't tempted to drive the car off and come back and say, man, it wasn't there. Someone towed it. Oh, uh, no, yeah. Someone it was stole this, it. There was, this, uh, there was this sort of squash Mercedes on the front of a garbage truck going down the street, but uh, yeah. Yeah, couldn't that find partic-
0: it. That particular guy uh, allegedly, uh, I think, I think he maybe did he got charged for it. I'm not sure what the verdict was, but allegedly uh, set fire to his own house in Turak that contained oh a lot gosh. of uh, million, a million dollar art collection, multi-million dollar oh. art collection to uh, claim the insurance. It uh, was a long time. It was about 10 years later, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the 2 stock take.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right, last question mm. for the day. This is from Pete. Uh, Brisbane Pete. Uh, I would like to know how to prioritize the watch list. What criteria would make one stock better than another if their scores are very s- similar?
1: Yeah, well, we use the uh, we use the QAV score, the the final score number to rank things, uh, and that, that gives us the the blend of quality and value that we're after. That's uh, and if a you have, simple process.
0: have well, I said to Peter is if you have two stocks that have the same score, then there no there's no difference
1: between them; they're equally good. Yeah, buy but, them both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other, other consideration is, as we've said before, is just how big they are. So if you You know, if you're a small investor, then that won't play a part, but if you're a larger investor, just have a look at their average transactions per day.
0: Pete also asks, I would like to understand what the figures represent, for example, which part of the checklist is critical, which is value, which is quality, what is management analysis, etc., and what information is nice to know? Now I am doing a little bit of that sort of de uh, or segmentation I guess or descriptive quality in this new PDF that I'm putting together. But essentially what I said to Pete is well none of the parts of the checklist apart from the sentiment because that's a breaker go no go uh, column. Everything else as I see it is is Equally, uh, equally important. They all add up to the overall score. Some get a higher score than others, but they're all equally important. No, nothing in there is more critical than anything else, except for the the sentiment uh, sell. What, what do you think, Tony?
1: Yeah, that's right. There are there are well, that's probably the, there's two probably what go on. No goes. Well, probably the one which is the sentiment. Uh, I was going to say price to operating cash flow being less than seven often becomes a go or no go as well, but I think that kind of comes out in the wash. We're unlikely to find something with a quality score that's that compelling that it overrides the price to operating cash flow score. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I don't have a problem with um, you know color coding the checklist into into what's quality and what's value and what's the go no goes. It'll be a fairly simple process. In terms of what's, you know, what's good to know or nice to know, I think everything's essential to the checklist. Uh, You know, perhaps the go-no-go is the most important, uh, but uh, everything's pretty important.
0: Well, sometimes we've had situations where share analysis is down, so we don't get a future EPS, and uh, you know other bits and pieces have been blank and missing, so we leave them aside. But you know we're <laughs> we're basically trying to gather as much data on the. Performance and the value of the stock as we can to go into our overall score, right? And I think that the question, I'm guessing that Pete's asking the question about colour coding so he knows what's more important and what's less important, but you're saying it's all equally important outside of the sentiment, which is the breaker point. Everything else is equally important. We want to get as much data as we can.
1: Well, yes and no. I think you're right overall, but we do give some things a two and they're probably a bit more important than the ones we give ones to.
0: Yes. Yeah, I said that before. Like some things get a yeah. higher score, other things yeah. get a lower score, but it's a, it's a data-gathering exercise. So yeah. we want to get all of that data in order to make a well-rounded, we'll get it to get a well-rounded score on those quality aspects and value aspects of, of the business. Correct, yeah. Mm. Pete continues, I've been picking up bits and pieces along the way, but it would be good to sort the checklist in a critical fashion. The most important information at the front end leading to the least important information at the back end. Okay, well,
1: I think we've just sort of explained that it's all important. Well, we could, we could rank it in terms of, uh, like in order of uh, the ones that uh, twos go first, but potentially.
0: Mm, well, we could put the sentiment up first because that's mm-hmm. the yep. go, no go, I guess. Uh, good idea. All right, I'll make a note of that. Good one, Pete. And Tony, I'll say sentiment first.
1: And maybe the twos after that,
0: too. Yeah, and he also asked for a visual uh, explanation of it. I think I have done a video before, but um, I will do another video as we reboot the series and do the Mm -hmm. manual and that kind of stuff. Thanks, Pete. Good stuff. Well, Mm. I think that's the end of this episode, TK.
1: Well, we, I did want to... We can do it next time or we can keep on going and maybe you can break it up. But I did want to talk about what looks like a time to buy based on the GFC charts for a couple of shares.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. Let's do that. you want to sure. keep
1: going? Yeah, sure. I know you talked about videoing this, but we can probably still talk about it as well.
0: Well, hold on. So of course- I will video it. Um, mm-hmm. Just give me a moment to set up my screen recording.
1: Okay. So I'm going to use Stock Doctor and Commonwealth Bank for this.
0: Okay, that's fine. Let a record
1: entire screen. Okay. Uh, shoot. Right. So uh, the, probably the most common question that we've had or that I've had recently is when is it going to be time to buy? I, you know, should I be buying now or should I be waiting? And, and I think things. people are saying to me, I think things are going to turn around quickly and I want to be in the market when it does. But I just wanted to put some perspective on that and to use some examples from the GFC, uh, A, because we have data for that, and B, because it's not a bad template to use for this current share price uh, cycle and just have a look at it. So I'm using Stock Doctor. I'm using Commonwealth Bank of Australia for, for two reasons. One, because it was the biggest company back then, so it's pretty indicative of, uh, of what was happening in the share market, and two, because it underwent a capital raising that I've spoken before uh, previously on this episode, and we need to see what that looks like. So I'm going into CBA, into advanced charting. Cam, if you're following this. I am. I'm going into the monthly frequency. Yep. I'm going into the range, which is called all, yep. which is the maximum. And I'm using chart style, which is a line. Yep. And then because we normally use a five-year monthly, I'm going to go back to in time around the GFC. And, you know, I think the GFC probably ended in about uh, middle of 2009. So I'm going to use that as the end point and then go back five years through to the middle of 2004 as the example. Mm-hmm. So if I... St- if I start a trend line from 2004 going forward, it's pretty easy to see it. It uh, has bottoms at around starting at around August 2004 and going all the way up to around December 2007. You can see a trend line going up along that, uh, that, along that graph. And then it falls off a cliff in January 2008. and uh-huh. So that would be our three-point sell position and so i don't know if you're drawing lines on this but around january 2008 maybe you want to wait a bit further and go february 2008 when the price was 49 dollars 80 oh sorry lower yeah 49 dollars 80 at the end of february 2008 that's when you're getting out and then if you look at the two highest points on that section of the graph it's going back to october 2007 and then to the right of that december 2007 and if you draw a line with those two points, then you're going to have a line which crosses on the upswing around about maybe July, August, two thousand and nine, when the price is forty two dollars seventy in August right. and thirty eight dollars in July.
0: <laughs> okay, hold on a second. I'm having trouble with my uh, graphing tools here. Sure. Or just, no, just not the graphing, just the mapping stuff. Okay, so I did the low points and I came in, yeah, uh, I came in around, I think, uh, let's see, my line crosses over around about yeah uh, January 2008, around yeah, about $55 right. would have been when you would have sold.
1: Uh, I've got the close in January 2008 at $49.13. Can you see that? Uh, Stock Doctor gives you the open and closing prices. Open for the month was 58 Closing price was forty
0: nine. Oh, okay. I got a black box over it. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So that's you're going to you're going to be selling around fifty bucks probably. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Actually, I think my lines must be my lines the end of December two thousand and seven. So let's go back and just uh, take me mm-hmm. through the points you're drawing the line through. So I'm starting on uh, September two thousand and four.
1: Yes, that's where I'm starting.
0: And my next one's going through November 2004? Correct. Okay. Well, that line then it would have been breached. Oh, okay. Middle of January, maybe. Yeah. Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Well, when I draw a line across, it says that's about $55.25 okay, is the actual fair enough. breach point.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it was coming down in January. We would have got out about halfway through the month, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay. So uh, high points. Mm. High point is October two thousand and seven. Yep. Just before the GFC crashed everything. Yep. And then and the so, second high point twelve is December two thousand and seven.
0: Yep. And yep. so that when it was coming back up, it was about thirty eight dollars around thirtieth of June two thousand and nine. Yeah, that's about right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you would have sold at 55 and bought back in at 37.
1: Yeah, and I would have had the benefit of using my cash for other things along the way if there are other opportuni- opportunities. Right. And, look, just just to look at the illustrative parts of this uh, graph, if we look at those two points when we sold, sold when we bought, in between the share price kept going down, it had a few upturns along the way, dead cap bounces. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones which we'll, I think we should try and avoid during this uh, this recession or whatever we're having at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, the one to avoid is the one in January 2009, which would have been around the time of their capital raising for Commonwealth Bank. Right. And, January two thousand. Uh, oh, yeah. See, that's the, that's the, the trough. Oh, yeah. And, okay. Uh, yep. Yeah, and that's uh, and to full disclosure here, I didn't start using three point trend lines until after the GFC because mm-hmm. uh, I you know went through the GFC and went okay I was kind of using gut here to work all these things out maybe there's a science to it mm. um, so I came across three point trend lines and started using those mm-hmm. uh, but what I did do and I don't think you know, I even had Commonwealth Bank before the GFC it was a pretty it was a good stock but it was pretty stayed. Um, But uh, what I did get access to was uh, the capital raising. So I remember I was driving uh, through the countryside in New Zealand when we were living there and get a phone call from my stockbroker saying, uh, I need to know now, but do you want to buy Combank at 27 bucks? And I said, sure. When was that? In January of uh, 2009. Oh, okay, when it
0: bottomed out and and it was doing a capital raising.
1: Yeah, and so it's Mm -hmm. high was 60, $60 and I thought buying at 27 was a good deal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and had to make a call quickly. So that's what happens. That's what will happen during this, this particular, particular so, crisis going so forward So the too. lesson
0: here though is that, okay, so you didn't sell at the very high point, but because you have rules in place, uh, whether it's a recession or just normal trading. You would have sold, assuming that you know you were using your three-point trend lines at the time. You would have sold when it breached. So you would have, it peaked at sixty-one. You would have lost, say, ten percent on the way Mm -hmm. down, but then you would have missed the the rest of the collapse. And then it bottomed out at uh, what uh, twenty. 26 bucks, 28 bucks, or mm-hmm. something.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: And then you would have bought back in at 37. So you would have
1: missed, oh, the top, the first, maybe you were 30%. Yeah, probably missed, probably uh, lost 20% on the way down and maybe missed the first 20 or 30 on the way up. Right. Yeah. Yep. But you're happy
0: to trade that for the risk of. Selling too late
1: um, mm-hmm. or buying in too early, correct. And I guess the one caveat I'll say on that is that we may find that that at some stage we get new numbers which will be so compelling, and the share price is starting to turn up that we do buy before the three-point trend line. Right, that may happen. I'm, mean, I'm not going to say religiously I follow it, but uh, and during the GFC there are a couple of examples where I just went, oh my god, this is such a compelling offer that mr market is making and i can see the share price is starting to trend up that i'm comfortable taking that risk right and that happened to me with two other stocks one was called mcpherson's and one was called credit corp and credit corp we've had in our portfolio before but i think from memory i was buying credit corp at about a buck
0: was the first one like l mcpherson's private photo channel because (laughs) i would have invested in that
1: it was shares in L McPherson. No, McPhersons <laughs> is a uh, a retail importer. Like they import things like cling wrap into supermarkets.
0: Right. Um, yeah. So as as always, as we tell people with everything on the checklist, like uh, this is a guideline, not a rule. Yeah. There are yeah. exceptions that you can make. This is your investing strategy. If you think you want to make an exception to something that you've heard on the show or something it says in the checklist, then make it. This is your life. It's your investment portfolio. These <laughs> yeah, are just... Yeah, that's right. Tony yeah. is not yet the Pope of the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. He doesn't get to make rules that you have to live by. We are, <laughs> you know, we, we, we have submitted him for uh, the next uh, conclave. Um, but until such time as you see the white smoke go up, and you hear the name Tony Kynaston read out, um, uh, what what is your your papal to- name going to be, Tony? Have you worked that out
1: yet ahead of time? No, hmm. no, Saint Atheist, perhaps
0: Pope Pope Kino <laughs> oh, I, the first Pope. I, I think. No, what about
1: Bursa, treasurer? <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, oh want you want hands George Pell's job? I want my hands on the Vatican gold. Yeah. Well, I
0: think I think George Pell still has that job. I don't think they've taken it off him yet. Hey,
1: your eminence, I can get your 90.5% return. <laughs>
0: You're in, kid. Yeah, I think they get much
1: better than that on the VIG, man. I think yeah, they're doing true. okay. Mm. Yeah, I, I saw okay. the meme recently about the Catholic Church's response to COVID-19. The, the Pope's told priests to, to suspend molestation for a while. Oh, <laughs> It's all right. You didn't say it's okay, kids can't catch it. Oh yeah, I guess you can catch
0: it from kids, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I stopped anyway. the, I just stopped the video.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's in bad taste. Well, I mean, yeah, okay, getting back to what we're doing here, a couple of other points to make. You could have held on to Commonwealth Bank. Um when it was, you know, when you bought it on the way up and it went through a high of sixty odd dollars, it went through another high of fifty-eight Went through another high in two thousand and fifteen of ninety two dollars, and now it's fifty five. So, uh, I guess you know, long term holders don't worry about these things. But if you bought Combank in two thousand and seven at say fifty five, you've made dividends along the way, but you're back to where you started from now, which I think is another validation for three point trend buying and selling.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: jolly good.
0: All right. Well, Ooh. is that it for today, Tony? It is, yeah. We've done a lot. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Um, just want to reiterate what we said at the beginning of the show. Uh, this, is, this is a good time to be learning all of this stuff because at some time, at some point, the market will turn around and uh, you want to be ready to take advantage of it you don't want to start your you know investing education then it's a bit late to take advantage of it so um, tune in we'll be doing good stuff and keep sending us questions So it's, it's terrific
1: yeah questions are great they really are
0: alright and stay safe everybody obey the rules wash your hands and then sit on them as Tony says <laughs> and uh, we'll be back next week yeah cool alright